Welcome to This Is You, the podcast. As our journeys unfold, so do our identities. What makes you, you? This podcast explores how different life experiences, concepts, or themes like friendship, religion, loneliness, impact how we see ourselves and the world. Join me on this journey as we talk to new guests and learn about their life experiences, reflect on our own, and see what it means for all of us going forward. Your journey to learn more begins now. Tamisha Isaac is the CEO and founder of Openly Positive, an organization that seeks to end the stigma around HIV and support those with HIV and their families. Her story talks about the different levels of abuse that she experienced throughout her life and how it became normalized over time. Being diagnosed with HIV at the age of 19, how it's affected her identity, and how she's been moving forward. So I found out that I was HIV positive at 19 years old. Originally, I am from the island of St. Martin. It's a nice, beautiful island in the Caribbean. Mm. I actually, I left my country, I left my island because of a domestic violence relationship that I was in. And um, long story short with that, I pretty much needed to leave because it was so bad to the point where my mom was like, if you don't leave, he is going to kill you and I'm going to bury you. And, you know, she, she, we couldn't have that. Yeah. I didn't want to die at a young age. And my mother didn't want to bury her only daughter, at a, you know, at such a tangent either so I I made the decision you know that it's best if I just leave and start all over Mm -hmm. so how long were you in the relationship for we were together for three years prior to me leaving so 17 18 turned 19 that December and then that April that's when I left okay so for three years yeah at that age like, I remember for me, when I was 17, I feel like you always think you know everything, right? Like, at 17, I thought I knew, like, all this stuff that I was, like, knowledgeable. And You're so right. We don't You're know. You're so right about that. No, we don't. We yeah. have no clue. We have no clue. And then, you know, not only that, like, me looking back now and me being a mom. Yeah. Like, my relationship with my kids and the relationship that my parents had with me, it was so different. Like... I was a very quiet child and I just took whatever. I was very passive and I allowed people to push me around, yeah. push me over, like my mom, pretty much. And I I never really admitted to her and told her that, but she was she was definitely one of the first person that taught me to accept abuse. I say this to say that I love my mother to death. She's my best friend. I'm talking about the relationship that we have prior to where we are now. Right. Right. Because we have done a lot of growing. Mm -hmm. The person that she was to me when I was younger and the person that she is to me now is two different people just like me. The person that I was then and the person that I am now, I it's two different people. Yeah. Yeah. And with my kids, there's certain things I just don't do. And I have conversation with my boys. I allow them to express themselves. I couldn't express myself to my mother. Can you give me an example of like a situation that sticks out in your head? I, I was terrified of her. That's one. Mm. 
Um, secondly, I remember, I think I was probably either four years or five years old and she was, she was bathing me and she was putting on my clothes and we were talk. she was talking to me about something. Mm-hmm. I'm four or five. I don't remember. And she was asking me, she was asking me questions and we were just talking and I was like, oh, I saw my boyfriend Tommy yesterday. I don't know what I'm really saying. Yeah. And I don't mean it in the, the, the adult vulgar way that adults processed it. Mm-hmm. And she slapped me and my nose just started bleeding. So for me, that was the norm. And that's how it started with my ex-boyfriend with the violence. He slapped me. My nose started bleeding. Oh, this is familiar. I know this. Okay. Wipe myself up. And I kept on moving. And then the slaps turned into punches. The punches turned into objects. The objects turned into other objects and slamming and cutting and all this other sorts of stuff. Yeah, it's a slippery slope, right? Like, And I think the normalization of violence. Because you were just saying a story. You were just expressing something that happened. Not in, like you said, an adult sort of way, but just as a four or five-year-old and innocent you know, there's this guy, whatever. And then the reaction, I don't know for you, for me, I think when you're that young too, you feel like I did something wrong. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So, and that moment she taught me that I couldn't trust her with my most vulnerable anything. Yeah. Or anyone. I didn't even do anything. Yeah. I just, we were just talking and you just booped me and slapped me up and that was the end result. And, you know, like when I go back in my head to those, those moments in those days, I forgive her so much because I don't know how my mother was raised. Yeah. My mother was born in the sixties. She was probably raised in an era where being brutal and cruel to your kids was we call it brutal and cool. They called it correcting. Yeah. It's, uh, what is it? Spare the raw, spoil the child. Right? right. It was like a very common way of parenting at that time. That was a philosophy. Exactly. So, you know, to her, she was correcting. To me, it was abuse. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 and in so many ways. And, you know, and that's the, that's one of my problems. With, with 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 our generation and the generation before us, for us to be able to move forward and get through certain things, get through certain emotions, we have to go back and dig up those things and we have to clean that slate. We have to clean that slate. People like to say, oh, the past is the past. Why you bring up the past? Why you like to talk about the past? Blah, blah, blah. Everybody like old stories. I know that I like to hear old stories of things, whether it's good or bad, because there's so much to learn from it. I think until you can process what has happened in the past, it's hard to move forward fully, right? Because it's a big part of your narrative, of your story, of how you feel about yourself, of how things are going forward. And I think if you don't get the opportunity to then think about those things and work through those emotions, then they're always sort of there. It's painful to dig deep and to talk about those things and go back. Very oh, painful. Like, oh, but you know what, though? What's the end of that? Yeah. 
going that deep and digging and laying it all out, the end of that is a peace and joy that no one can ever take away from you. Because once you strip yourself of all those things, your true self emerges and it's it's just I don't know how to explain it. It I know for me that's been my experience. Like letting go of all of that stuff and just living in my truth and accepting everything. Mm. I'm living in my glory moment right now. Yeah. I'm living in my glory moment. To other people, they probably feel like, Oh, she talks too much, she tells her business, she did she that. Well, no, I'm not really telling my business if if you look deeper than what I'm saying. I'm trying to help you heal yourself from all of the, the dirt that you've sweeped under the rug because too much dirt under that rug becomes a lump. And one day you will trip over that lump. You're going to have to lift that rug up one day and dust all that dirt, get rid of all that dirt. Yeah, yeah. And you know, it's interesting. You were talking about letting go. But I think when people hear the words letting go, sometimes they think, that means not making a big deal out of it. And that's not, I don't think that's what you're saying. And I don't think that's what it actually is. I think when you have, when you go there and you reflect and you go through all of those emotions, sometimes when you're able to come on the other side, you can let it go because you made sense of it. You made peace with it. You understand it wasn't fair or right, but sometimes even understanding how it came to be then sort of releases you from then that defining who you are going forward. So it's not to say, you know, oh, because you'll hear it, right? Like you'll bring up something and people are like, oh, you know, why don't you let it go? Like, why do you keep bringing up this thing? And it's like, because it's there. It's a part of you still. And it, you, it takes a different amount of time to get to a point where you're like, I've made sense of this. And now it doesn't hold on to me in the same way anymore. Absolutely. You know? Absolutely. Absolutely. And that process looks really different for every single person, right? I agree. Next, Tamisha describes coming to America and the day she was diagnosed with HIV, the feelings that followed, and how HIV has affected her life going forward. I came to America and I went to school in Massachusetts. And then when I came back from school in Massachusetts, it's been a year already since I've been here. And I actually asked one of my aunts to take me to a clinic. Not that I felt sick or ill or anything. I didn't have any symptoms or nothing. I just wanted to go get checked. And um, she did. She took me. And on the paperwork, they asked if I wanted to get checked for HIV. And I clicked, you know, I checked off yes. Mm-hmm. Um, a couple of days after they called my aunt's house and was like, you know, they're looking for me. I need to come back to the clinic because my pap smear came back abnormal. Went back to the clinic and I filled out all the paperwork again. They took my number, called my number, went in the room and the counselor was like, you know, he just slid me a paper with a red big circle on it. And I'm like, you know, what does this mean? And he just shook his head like, you, you know, you're positive and I started crying hysterically I thought that my life as I knew it was over yeah young and in my mind because you know back in those days 
even in the early 2000s, back in those days, HIV was still considered a death sentence to many who, who didn't know, you know? Yeah. So I thought that my life was over, that I was literally going to die for real. The counselor who was in the room, he didn't actually have a conversation with you, really. No. He just slid you a piece of paper. Yeah. I mean, you're already coming from a situation where there's domestic violence. You left a country that was your home. You came all the way over here. And then you're grappling with that along with not really getting a conversation or anything around A, that you're HIV positive. And he didn't even say the words, really. No. Like, just gave you the yeah. paper. Yeah, I don't allow myself to really go back. But from what I vaguely allow myself to remember... I knew that I felt anger towards the way he delivered it to me. I was very angry and I was like he didn't like he didn't even have the decency to explain. I felt a lot of anger mm -hmm. that day. Yeah, I mean that's your first exposure. And it's also your first exposure to someone's reaction of finding out that you're HIV positive. When you get a diagnosis, any diagnosis Telling other people is difficult. And this was the first person who knew before you knew. And yeah. their reaction was so like shaking his head and giving you a piece of paper. Right. Right. It's an experience that I will never forget. It's definitely one for the books. That action right there is definitely a don't. Yes. So those are the things that you do not do. And I think that. I, I locked it in my vault mm -hmm. and I never took it out until it was relevant. Mm -hmm. And I guess those are one of the things like on my, you know, we all have like our to do check off list. Like, okay, I need to do this. I don't need to do that. Mm -hmm. And I think that was one of them. That was one of the things that I put in my do not do check off list. And I'm like, I will become a counselor one day and I will help people out. Cause when I got diagnosed and I went through the whole spiel, there's different stages, right? There's different stages that people go through. And like you said, in any diagnosis, there's different stages. Mm -hmm. For HIV, there's so there's the denial, mm -hmm. there's the anger, there's the revenge, the isolation, and sometimes worse. Right? Mm -hmm. I skipped through the denial. I was never I never allowed myself to be in denial. Once I got over the anger. Yeah. Once I got over the anger, I was like, okay, what can I do to help another 19 year old not go through what I went through? Yeah. And I'm, I'm going to tell you, Arusa, that process was very hard for me because I actually didn't free myself completely until two years ago. What do you mean by free yourself? Meaning freeing myself of the guilt, of the shame, mm. of the stigma, of what other people thought of me, my family, my friends, my parents, their perceptions, their, you know, their, their limits. Mm -hmm. I no longer allowed their limits to dictate who and what I was and where I wanted to go and what I wanted to do. Yeah, I mean, I think we're impacted by what people think of us all the time. 
you feel judged about how you dress, what you do. Like there's so much judgment about everything. And when it's something that relates to your health and relates to something that has a lot of stigma, it's, I imagine, doubly worse. And you're getting it from multiple sides. But I think the other thing is you also have to process it yourself. Before you can be like, I'm not going to let them define me, you have to figure out what is your definition. What does this mean for you? Yeah. Did you feel anger towards the situation itself that you were in this oh place? Oh my God. I was angry about the situation. I was angry about the person. Yeah. Yeah. For, I think for the first five years, I wanted to get a call that say that he was dead or something like that for the first five years. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he changed your life. In an incredibly fundamental way. In so way. many ways. In so many ways. Because not only was he violent towards me. Yeah. He took away my innocence. He took away my choice. Yeah. He took away. He had, he had mentally damaged me. Emotionally damaged me. Physically damaged me. And it was. It was like you, he. I was a figurine, a glass figurine, and you just threw me through the wall, and I shattered, and I was left to just pretty much figure out how to put all of these pieces back together. That's never the same, right? Because you're not the same person you were before you met him either. I am definitely not. Right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, every relationship impacts you, but when it's something that has domestic violence and the emotional piece, too, and the mental piece, right? It sort of breaks you down bit by bit. Oh, absolutely. You know? Absolutely. And the crazy thing with him is his violence wasn't limited to just physical hitting. Yeah. There were sexual violations and, it, it, you know, I never really talk about those things in depth. Yeah. But people don't know that when a woman who's been through so many traumatic situations and she starts to be with a man and this man starts doing things that triggers certain things in her and then she disappears, you're not comfortable or you're not strong enough to have that conversation. You just block that person. And that's been my case with a lot of relationships. I wasn't comfortable talking about a lot of things. I wasn't comfortable sharing certain things and being vulnerable with people so I would just cut them off but it was never safe for you to be vulnerable either you mentioned being strong but I think when you've been in situations where being vulnerable was not an option then it's not about strength it becomes easier to be vulnerable when you're in a place where you can be vulnerable and you're accepted or embraced or supported exactly and if you are in situations where you don't feel safe to be vulnerable or have those conversations, it's very difficult to know how do you even begin to do that, A. But also I think there's so many things that, like, okay, when something happens, right, the first time someone crosses the line, and it could be a really small line, it could be like something very simple. When you let it go, now the line moves, Right. And now when they do the next thing and you go, oh, maybe that's not a big deal. Then the line moves again and it just keeps moving until you get to a place where you're like, how did I even get here? You know, it's so gradual sometimes that it can be very difficult to then be like, how do you even begin 
to unpack all of that. So you talked a bit about the anger phase of it. What were the other things that you were feeling as it relates to anger? I was suicidal. Yeah. I attempted twice. Well, three times total. Mm. But twice within that period. The early days, like when you found out. Yeah. Okay. And what were you thinking of at that time? that I didn't want to be a burden on anyone. I didn't want to, I, I, I've heard and seen stories of people decaying and that's also because I didn't understood what really took place. I also didn't know that HIV is not AIDS, mm. you know, even though a lot of people confuse that. I had to, like, I had to learn certain things. I, had to, I, I automatically thought, okay, I have HIV, I have AIDS, I'm going to die. Mm. And you didn't want to see what that would look like. You were afraid of what it would look like. Yes. You survived that attempt. Did you consider it again at a later point? Oh, I have. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, you know, I think that's something that I don't think that we, we totally rid ourselves completely of those kind of thoughts until we're fully healed. Yeah. And you have to remember, I wasn't, I wasn't operating in my full self. I probably was operating on 10% of who I truly was back then. I mean, at that point, I don't know if you know who you even are, right? Because you've gone through so many things that have broken down parts of you. That when you're at this stage, who are you now? And what, who do you want to be now? That's a very complex thing to navigate. Absolutely. Uh, you know, you brought up the figurine piece. And I've used that analogy for myself before too, that when it breaks, even when you put it back together, there's still all the cracks. There's cracks, of course. There's missing pieces. There's missing pieces. <laughs> so you're never really whole. You're never, you're the, never same. the same. No. And that doesn't mean that you can't then grow from that or turn into something else. But it takes a long time to glue some of those pieces back and then to go, okay, what does this mean now for me going forward? I hear you too, I think, in my own sort of experiences, struggling with the, it would be easier if I wasn't here or feeling like a burden or just feeling like, what's the point? And it's hard because I think even as you work through some of those feelings, they still sort of linger a little bit because the concepts that led you to those thoughts, they're still in there somewhere, even if your situation has changed. Of course, of course. It just take, it takes a trigger. Yeah. It takes a trigger to just tip that. Mm -hmm. But one, one, again, once you, once you're, you fully healed yourself and you have a bigger, better understanding of what's your purpose and why you're here and what you're doing, what you're doing and what's your cause, then those, those thoughts, they, they will come, mm -hmm. but they won't permeate. They won't infest and it, it wouldn't grow. And because I'm not going to lie, even now, like, just recently, a couple months ago, I've had, I've had the thought, yeah. But then, just as quickly as the thought came, as quickly I 
took it out my mind and I started thinking about something else or doing something else to take my mind off of that. Yeah. So, you know, it, I don't think that it ever leaves. I think the, the thing is to have control and to know when, to know when it's coming, to know what the triggers is, mm -hmm. to avoid them or to, to deter from going, you know, having a head on collision. It's like you're stocking up your white blood cells, right? Like you need things to help counteract when that comes, right? And so when you've gone through some healing or you have a support system or you have other things that are fueling you, even when the thought comes, you're able to then deal with that before it turns into something much worse. Another thing we have to remember, not everybody is willing to own their shit, but give me an example of what you mean by that. So what I mean by that is when I say not everybody is ready to own their shit, meaning we're put in soaps in situations, right? And we love we we're quick to say, Oh, it was your fault. Oh no, it was my fault. Yeah. How about we take out the you and my fault and we just break it down and slice it in the middle, say, Well, you know what? I take ownership of this, and if I had done this or done that, you wouldn't have done this or done that, you know? And I apologize. Moving forward, we're going to figure out a way how to do something differently where it don't lead to all the other negative stuff and or it's, not, you know, whatever it is, whatever the situation is, right? A lot of people... It's so easy for them to not take ownership of nothing and to say, you know what? I'm this way because you did it. I did that because you're the one that made me. It, it was all your fault. I had, I had no control out of it. It was all you. And I have a term for that. It's, it's called locus of control. Mm. There's two. There's, external locus of control and internal locus of control so the external locus of control is i believe the outcome of my life determines by the outside forces meaning environment politics government friends god it was their fault it had nothing to do with me mm. then the internal locus of control is i believe my actions determine the outcome of my life so I'm going to take action and ownership of whatever it is that I do. Mm -hmm. So so that's interesting to me because I personally feel like it's a blend for me because I think one extreme or the other can be a problem. So if you only think that external events influence you, then it's really easy to see yourself as a victim and not take ownership or control over what your actions may have been to contribute to the situation that you're in. But on the flip side, if you feel like it's only all you, it can be really easy to blame yourself for everything and not see the contextual pieces that have led to where you are. You know, it's like right. a combination. So it definitely, you, you definitely have to have your balance, right? Yeah. Yeah. And everything you have to have your yin and your yang. You, one can't just like light and dark. It, one can't survive without the other. It's the circle of life. It's the way of life. Do I definitely believe that I'm the fault of everything? Absolutely not. Yeah. Do I think that, you know, everything externally causes me harm and it's not me, it's everything them? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. But 
you know, like you said, you you know, you you have you have to have a middle, you have to have a balance. So that's what I mean by owning your shit. There's people who they, their control locus of control is solely external, and they don't they don't take ownership for nothing, and they don't think that they're the fault of nothing. It's all everybody else except for them. Yeah, yeah. How would you say? Like looking at these concepts, internal and external locus of control, how would you say your journey has been from that point of, I mean, really, your story starts, and like all of our stories, they start from the beginning when we're born, right? But I think the HIV aspect of your story is highly influenced by the relationship that you were in and the upbringing that you had, and because they all sort of coalesce together. There, there's a big connection between the the way you were treated when you were younger, which again, I hear you on the, I think our parents do the best they can with the tools that they have, but how we feel about those things, you know, uh, but how those things come across to us and the messages it teaches us, those then permeate and the relationships we have going forward, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. So thinking about when you went through I know the diagnosis is not the only part of your story, but I'm trying to get a good, because I know that could be really hard for people. Um, so that's why I'm asking a lot of questions around that piece. But mm -hmm. how did you process that balance between the internal and external control piece as it related to your diagnosis? <laughs> how do you? I mean, I'm not, I'm not even sure. So back then... Oh, I blamed myself. I blamed myself. I blamed not listening. I blamed, I, I definitely, I was totally an internal look mm -hmm. of control at that time. Oh yeah, absolutely. I blamed, I, I, I definitely blamed myself. So I went through my anger, blaming myself. I never blamed anybody else. I, I took full responsibility for everything. Of course, some some things probably I probably went through the extreme, yeah, to the point of suicidal, you yeah. know, yeah, that's the extreme. Mm -hmm. And it's not until I actually started going to counseling and you know doing events and empowerment events and attending conferences, my mind started shifting, and I was introduced to God and. It's just different things started shifting in my life mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and my perspective and the way how I see the world and how I saw myself mm -hmm. and even my family. Hmm. So tell us about the healing process. What was that like for you? Oh, oh my goodness. The healing process for me, it's, it's, I actually just recently answered that question for a magazine that I'm being featured in. Mm. And I'm going to say that for me, the healing process is ongoing. Yeah. It's ongoing because I'm going to, I'm, I'm healed from a lot of things right now, mm -hmm. but that doesn't mean that there's other things that's not going to show up or come or happen that's going to make me sad or make me go back and think, you know, 
Mm-hmm. It's it, a, the healing process for me. It's a journey. It's an ongoing journey. The journey never stops. The journey never stops. The goal is to to keep the momentum that you have, mm-hmm. positive ones. Surround yourself with positive people and positive things, and to keep you on a frequency where you can elevate. Because your elevator has already been down in the basement. You don't want to go back there. Yeah. You do not want to go back down in the basement. So you have to keep yourself at a frequency that's going to just take your elevator up. And your elevator is it's traveling only one way up. When your elevator goes down, you have to figure out what, how, what it is that you need to cut out, what it is that you need to stop in order for you to get your elevator back up again. So for me, healing is an ongoing journey. It's an ongoing process. Healing never stops. It never stops. Well, healing is a broad word as well, right? Because you're always going to be experiencing things. And those things might be triggered for previous trauma or there might be new trauma, right? Like we are all works in progress where we're continually growing and changing and experiencing new things. And so that healing doesn't, you might have processed certain things that have happened And you may be in a better place about those things, but that doesn't mean that other things won't come up or that other things won't open a particular wound that you thought you had sealed to some degree. You know, it's crazy that you brought that up. I'm cool talking about HIV and AIDS. I'm cool talking about my domestic violence and all that other stuff. But when I was around seven, I was molested by a neighbor, right? And that went on for quite some time. I didn't tell my mom about it until I was like about 27 or 20, 27 or 28. I was pregnant with my second son. And the crazy thing is when I told her, her response was, oh, you liked it. So that's why you never told anybody. Really? Yeah. And, you know, it's like, (sighs) I was dating a guy recently, really nice guy. And he did something to me that triggered that seven-year-old. Yeah. And she showed up and she acted out because I never healed her. Yeah. So I laugh and I smile when you said what you said because it's so true. When you, you there's, there's things that you thought that you buried and you... you, you until something triggers you yeah. that you thought that you forgot. And it's like, hey, here I am. Remember me? And that seven-year-old taught me something. That whole situation taught me something because it wasn't the first time that she showed up to him. And he was like, I don't know what it is going on with you, but we need to talk. I didn't want to talk about it. Of course not. I didn't want to talk about it. Then it happened. It presented itself again another time. Mm. And he was like, you know, he can't be with an adult who can't communicate. (sighs) And he was like, if you leave this time, you can't come back. And of course, I did what I usually do. I left. And then by the time I realized it was it was too late. He he had his deal breaker and that was his deal breaker. And but that taught me that there was things about me that I needed to fix. Mm. 
you know, you've talked about these pivotal moments in your life where something very traumatic happened to you. And then when you told somebody about it, whether it was the first or telling someone like your mom who, you know, is an important person in your life, the reaction you got was just, I'm like flabbergasted. Like, because when you're told something like, well, you didn't say anything because you enjoyed it or you should have listened or this is like any of those things or like a piece of paper with a circle on it that reinforces this notion that you can't talk about things without people judging you in this crazy way you know and and putting it on you to see it's you it's your fault this happened and you are making these situations and it's like no, I mean, no, that's not what happened. But when you get those messages reinforced continually, then you start to believe that too, you know? And how much, it's hard enough to talk about something traumatic, but then when the response you get is something like that, it shuts you down, it kills a part of you, I think. You know, like, and you told, you told her as an adult, but if you had gone in that response, as a child like you know what I mean even as an adult to hear that how do you process that the crazy thing is my brother was with was with me when I said that and when she responded that my brother lost it he was like he was like did you hear what she said he was like did you hear what she just she just said and that's your response my brother my brother lost it he lost it he couldn't believe that this is what she said. But I have since then, like, I think that that was something that was out, that was eating at me. Yeah. And that was another part of, like, that was another added to my anger. Yeah. Yeah. Because me looking back now at that person when I was 22, 23, 24, up until I was like 20, I was very crazy. What do you mean? Like, to the point, when I mean crazy, to the point of, I was always ready to fight. I was very angry. Yeah, yeah. And that anger, instead of talking about it, it was a reaction. I do anything, and I was ready to take your head off. Yeah, yeah. It's hard to process all of, like, you know, you brought up a rug, like the dust under the rug. Uh, analogy before and I've actually used the same analogy to talk about how when you don't like this when I talked about initially it was in a relationship context but I think it applies regardless like when you're in a relationship and instead of dealing with the problem you put it under the rug eventually not only is there so much stuff under the rug that becomes a lump like you said but you can't even tell what's under the rug anymore right like it's all disintegrated into dust and you don't even know why you're angry or what the issue is because there's just so much stuff there. You can't unpack it, you know? And you went through some very serious trauma, repeated trauma, where how do you even begin to say, like, this is where it's coming from or whatever? You're just angry all the time. And I think that's a completely understandable response 
because there's a lot to be angry about, A. And B, to process it, you need space and support and safety. And you didn't have that. So how were you supposed to do that at that time? You know, it's not, it's not possible. It has to start somewhere, you know, and you didn't have any of that. So how would you, how could you do it? Like, and you know, I feel like you've, through this conversation and through some of the other things that we've talked about, I think you've gotten to a place where you're able to heal about things and talk about things and and see how you can use what you've experienced to then help other people, which is amazing and remarkable. But I think it's a, it's a gradual process, you know, and it's, it takes a lot to then turn around and go, how do I help someone else like not go through this? Because every time you have to open yourself up again, you know, it's like, you can't bury it. And I mean, burying it, it's always there still, right? Like it's never gone when you bury something, but it's like you have to open yourself up over and over and over again to help other people. And that's really remarkable that you're doing that. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's just, yeah, I mean, that's a lot. I feel for you. And I think you reach a breaking point, right? Like, where you're just like how do you unpack any of it it's it's a process Arusa. it's a process because every day like i have to remind myself you're great you can yeah. do this and then like my kids they're 13 and 10 now mm-hmm. and like my 13 year old like when he see because he's seen me at my worst 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 and he's also now experiencing me at one of my best. Yeah. And when he sees me getting awards and we go to places and people are coming up to me, he just stands in admiration. And then he'll come and he'll be like, Mom, you're the best. You're so beautiful. You're great. Like, he will tell me things like, this is my 13-year-old. Yeah. You know? So everything I do... I do it for them. I do it for my kids. I do it for me. And I do it for next generation who will not be scared to live in their truth and speak their truth and who will not be scared to say, okay, you don't believe me, but there is someone out there who will. There is someone out there who will know that my my story is true because we can relate. Yeah. You know? And that's, that's the message that I want to convey. That's the message that I want to leave. Like yesterday, I was a guest speaker for an organization called 100 Suits. Thank you, Mr. Kevin for awarding me the opportunity to come and speak to your young scholars. And I played a game with them that my mentor, Jerry Dillard, created, and it's called Don't Pass It Along. It's a game, simple game, super fun, but highly educational where HIV and AIDS is concerned and how the public responds to it. Mm-hmm. And the game was so impactful. Like by the end of it, the kids was just looking at me like in awe. What happens in the game? So the game is, okay, so it's called Don't Pass It Along. So I create these cue cards. So I write the letter A, the letter O, the letter U, and the letter C on there. 
right? So the A stands for abstinence. The U stands for unprotected. The O stands for out of course, out of course sexual activity. Uh, A abstinence, O out of course, U unprotected. And the C stands for condom use. And then there's a D. And the D stands for disease. And so I give out these cue cards to all the pupils. And then I just throw a D there. So there's a disease in a community. We don't know it. So we was just having conversation. Mm -hmm. So I had them paired up in pairs of twos. And I asked them four questions. And for the four questions, they had to switch partners. Just simple conversation. Mm -hmm. And then in the end, I had them sit down. And then I told them for the purpose of this exercise, there's a disease amongst you guys. So I said, whoever has a D, please stand up. And then that one person with the D stand up. And then I asked them, um, I said to them, I said, anybody that spoke to this individual, please stand up because you have been exposed to a disease. So then I keep asking until now everybody is standing up. The whole class is standing up. And then I start saying, um, so if you have a letter A, you may sit down. You are safe because you abstain from any risky behavior. Mm-hmm. And then so I go down and then I say that if you have an O, you also may sit down because you had your fun, but you didn't exchange in any bodily fluids. And then they sit down. And then I said, um, if you have a C, you also may sit down because you had your fun, you played, but you choose to have condom sex, meaning you protected yourself from all barriers, you're safe, you may sit down. And then I say, if you have a you, you may not sit down. You may come with me to get tested because you have been exposed to a disease. So then all the kids who had you's had to come with me. And it was, it was, it was, wow. it was definitely something. It was definitely something. And then after all of that, I asked the A, how did it feel? to sit down and watch the others sweat and they express themselves themselves and then ask the O and then I asked the C and so on and so forth and then I turned around and I asked the U's and the D I was like how did it feel for you to know that you had a disease and you didn't even know and you was talking to all these people and then I said how did you feel mm-hmm. that you spoke to unprotected and they was like, this is how we're being in real life. And I said, yes, this is exactly how it is in real life. This is why we have to have a communication. This is why we need to not be afraid to talk about something that that is no longer a death sentence if you take care of it from the jump. Yeah. You get your medication. You can even have, I'm not promoting unsafe sex, but you could even have, if you and your partner has been together for so long, you both are clean, well, you're, you're, you're HIV positive, but you're undetectable. You can have sex and you can have kids that are HIV negative mm-hmm. and you won't pass it along. It's all a matter of educating yourself and having a commu- communication. Mm-hmm. So that's what the game was about. Wow. That sounds, it's so powerful, I think, because when they were changing partners, they were just having conversations, right? Like, and you can see how quickly something can spread. Yeah. Through interactions that you're having. Yeah. um, That you don't always think about how quickly these things spread. And then once, if I gave it to you, you give it to someone else, like it's just, 
expands, right? Yeah. Uh, so it's a really interesting exercise. But also in, I like how you asked about how did it feel to be the person with the D or how did it feel to be when people got to sit down versus the people yeah. who did not get to sit down, right? Yeah. Uh, because it makes it so real. Because when, it's not like they chose, it, like they had a card, right? Right. And, and it was and random. The key to it was I didn't want them to answer the questions that I was asking on the card. I just wanted them to write names of their partners that they were talking to. So they had four names each on their oh. cards. Yeah, so you can trace it. You can trace. Okay, yeah, actually, I did talk to you. Wow. So what do you feel, you mentioned some of them, but what do you feel are the common misconceptions when it comes to HIV? So you mentioned a few right now about that you could have kids, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and they they could be HIV negative. Uh, what are mm-hmm. some of the, the other ones that you feel most people don't know about? And the, another misconception that people have as well is that HIV has a look, you know, mm-hmm. it doesn't. They think that you have to look decrepit and look discolored and all these other sorts of stuff, and it's not true. And then another thing, they feel like if they drink after you or eat after you, no, that's you, you're not going to get HIV like that. And HIV does not discriminate. It's an opportunistic infection. It's yeah. an opportunistic disease. It takes an opportunity. Yeah. You know? So don't give it the opportunity. What are ways it can spread? So exchange of bodily fluids, right? So semen, mm-hmm. women, vaginal fluids, okay, um, rectal fluids. Oh, really? Eh? Breast milk. I didn't know that about breast milk. So for our listeners, and even for myself, because I actually don't know that much about HIV or AIDS. So what is the nuance that separates them? HIV is the human immunodeficiency virus, mm-hmm. and AIDS is acquired. So AIDS happens when your CD4 cell can no longer protect you, and you no longer have any fighter cells to help you protect the stuff that would attack you, and then your CD4 cells will fight back. They are like your generals. In your body. Ah, I see. Okay. So HIV is the virus that causes AIDS. So if Mm -hmm. HIV goes untreated, it will it breaks down your system. It breaks down your CD4 cells, Mm -hmm. and to the point where you can no longer fight off the infection. So that's what AIDS is. AIDS. You don't die because you have HIV. You die because your body can no longer fight off the stuff that normally was built to fight off because the generals are no longer. So it's like getting the flu, your white blood cells then try to fight off the flu. But if they don't have enough or if you don't get help through medication, then eventually that can lead to something that flu will turn into pneumonia, that pneumonia exactly. will turn into fever and all that. So those are the things that kills you, and that's what's called AIDS. So it's it's the acquired illnesses, so many of them, that kills you. It's a consequence of the virus when your body's no longer able to fight it off. Right. 
if it goes untreated, meaning if you're HIV positive and you don't know and you go for years and years and years and years and years, months, years without even knowing that you do have it and without getting it treated, mm-hmm. the end result is you will have, you'll develop AIDS and all the other illnesses that comes with it. Yeah. Are there symptoms of, so you said you didn't have, you didn't notice any symptoms? No. So there's two types of HIV positive people. They're asymptomatic. That's what I was. I, I show no symptoms or signs. And then there's HIV positive symptomatics, meaning you show symptoms, you show signs. What would some of those symptoms or signs be? So some of those symptoms will be like a, a cold that lasts a little longer than regular cold. Recurring pneumonia. So it's sort of like your body is compromised. Pretty much. So wasting your your big one minute, small one minute, big one minute, small one minute. If that's called wasting. Big in what way? In weight. Oh, like it rapidly fluctuating. Yeah, yeah. Those are some of the three signs that I could think of off my head. If you're symptomatic, but you may not be symptomatic. And which was your situation? Right, right. And the crazy thing is you can be asymptomatic for for years, for years, years. Wow. Ten plus years, yeah. Because in that time, you have HIV, but it hasn't developed into AIDS. And so you're not, if you're asymptomatic, you're not seeing any symptoms until it progresses to AIDS because it's been left untreated for so long. Right. Wow. Okay. So there's definitely an urgency to then get tested. Well, you should definitely practice that with every partner. Yeah. Yeah. Even me as an HIV positive person, I've been celibate for the past two years, but Moving forward, if I am to date again and see someone, oh, you're going to know that I'm positive, but we're both going to go get tested, too, because um, there's other things out here. Yeah. And even though I'm an HIV positive person who is undetectable, who is considered by the CDC undetectable, it's the margin of me passing it to you is very slim. Like on a scale from one to ten, the cases is maybe one. So that's what it means by undetectable, that it's a very low level. Level of transmitting, of transmission, right? But there's other SDIs and Mm -hmm. STDs out there. Mm -hmm. Even though I'm I'm undetectable and I may not be able to pass you anything, who's to know what you have and what you can give to me on top of what I already have? You know what I mean? Yeah, and because they think certain STDs or SDIs are asymptomatic, Right. Some of them, I think you do definitely see symptoms, but other ones you may not. And so someone may have something and not know. Right. And like they may think they're fine and then they're passing on things and it's kind of a cycle. Right. And you don't know where to break it. How do you feel HIV plays a role in your identity now? Well, it's definitely a part of my identity because it's a part of who I am. It's Mm -hmm. a part of who who I have become. Mm -hmm. And I can't talk about myself without talking about it Mm -hmm. because the person that I come into contact with, especially on a sexual basis or relationship basis, I have to disclose to them. Is that hard? In the beginning, yes. In the beginning for me, it was very hard. It was hard because 
of the rejection. Yeah. It was hard because of the rejection and it, 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 it was, it's not a good feeling to feel rejected, especially if you like someone. Yeah. Yeah. So yes, in the beginning it was hard, but then as I gotten a little bit more comfortable with myself and comfortable in who I am and comfortable and knowledgeable of yeah. what was happening in my body and knowledgeable about the disease and its effects and all the other different stuff. Um, I actually, I used it at, at, at my advantage to ward people off. And the crazy thing is that worked so weirdly because I would tell them to shoot them away and it made them closer to me. That was weird. Really? Yeah. So it went in the other direction. Some of my best friends, male best friends to this date, that's how we became best friends. Maybe it's the ownership piece, right? Like you're being upfront, you're being honest, and you're owning it. I think the part that was really important about what you were talking about was that you also know about the disease. You're knowledgeable. So you know what it actually means and what it doesn't mean. So if you're disclosing and there is an opportunity for dialogue there, then you're able to educate the person on how that will impact the relationship without them jumping to whatever conclusions that they may have because they don't know. Absolutely. And then it empowers you then to then take control over that conversation and to be like, here's what's possible. Here's what's not possible. This is how we can be safe. Right. Right. So like you said in the very beginning, it's not a death sentence. Right. And you're able to then show exactly why not only is it not a death sentence, but also you can still do a lot of the things that a person who did not have HIV does. Right. So live a life that maybe at one point you thought was not possible. A normal life, actually. It's like, you know, because, you know, I know HIV to everyone looks differently. Yeah. But for me, I take one pill a, once a day, and it's like taking a vitamin. Mm. I take vitamins every day, and that's it. Really? At first, it was kind of hard because I was on way more medication, and those medications, some I was allergic to, some made me really sick, mm. to nauseous, to diarrhea, to headaches, mm. you know, in my early years of diagnosis, like, I went through several medications before we got the right ones. Yeah, yeah. But you've come a long way since that point. I have, and I'm grateful, and I'm happy. Yes, I have. I'm proud of myself. I mean, you should be. You've accomplished a lot in that time, not just in terms of healing and making sense, but also in helping others. So if you could go back in time and talk to your 19-year-old self that day, you got diagnosed. Let's say you were the counselor instead, okay? Oh, my God. What would you have said? I would have definitely let her know that she is beautiful and this is this is hard in the beginning to process, but with guidance, with hard work, with dedication, with information, she could definitely, she can be an advocate. She can be whatever she want to be to help somebody else. I wish you had had that, but I'm really glad that other people have you in that process. What's really remarkable about the things that you've been talking about is, A, I think 
seeing the relationship between trauma and abuse and how it trickles in lots of different ways and how we get messages sometimes when we're very young about what is normal and what is not normal and what should you accept and what you shouldn't accept. And, you know, the story that you were telling about your mom and the bathtub, whenever I talk to people, there's always these pivotal stories. Your mom may not even remember that situation. It might have been one of many, but for some reason that really struck a chord for you. And then that influenced what you took in your relationship, what you felt was normal, even as that escalated. And then you left from there, you left the country that you were from, and you came all the way here, and then you found out you were HIV positive in a not very supportive way, and then making sense of that process. Why don't you tell us a bit about how people can get a hold of you? So you can find me on Instagram at openlypositive. So it's one word, openlypositive. Um you can also find me on Anchor Podcast FM at also openly positive. And you can find me on um, Facebook at Miss Misha's World of Empowerment Group. That's my openly positive group. But prior to becoming openly positive, I created this whole Miss Misha's World of Empowerment where I would beautify women with makeup and tell them my story. <laughs> so. Miss, you know, Miss Misha's world has always been a part of me. That's a world that I created in my mind and I created a group for it. But that's my openly positive group. Or you can email me at openlypositivebooking at gmail.com. Thank you for being so candid with us and sharing and really getting deep. I think it's so important that we have opportunities to hear from other people's stories. I think you can learn so much through that experience. And thank you so much for sharing all of that with us. And I wish you all the best in your journey. And I think what you're doing is wonderful and brave. And you are beautiful and inspiring. Thank you. And I will follow you. I hope others do as well. We're following each other. Yes. Yes. So thank you so much for doing this with me. You're welcome, Arusa. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. So my question for all of you has to do with the normalization of abuse. So Tamisha and I talked a lot about how there's different points in our life where we may experience something and while initially you may have a line and feel like someone has crossed it, when you let it go, that line sort of moves forward. And so the next time it takes a little bit more to reach your breaking point. And that just keeps happening until you get to a point where you can't believe where you've gone into, and what you've accepted as normal. So my question to everyone is, have you ever experienced that? So that could be with any type of abuse. It could be emotional, physical, sexual abuse, or it could be broader. It could just be about the respect you have for yourself and what you're willing to take from other people. Has that line changed as time has gone on? Are you now in a different place where you're finding yourself accepting things from people that you never would have imagined you'd be okay with? but it happens so gradually over time that you almost didn't notice. So share your experiences with us. I know it's a very touchy subject. So if you don't feel comfortable commenting, feel free to message me or send me an email and I'd love to hear from you. Until next time, take care.